Isaiah chapter 57. As we begin our revival meeting this week, we understand that we cannot set the terms for a revival, but we can meet their conditions. God brings revival on his time frame, his timetable, and his terms. So we look this morning, and if you're, if you're thinking, oh, boy, I wish Dr. Getch was here to preach this morning, so do I. <laughs> so, uh, so that would be great. He will be in, in, uh, in maybe about another year or so. Um, but in Isaiah chapter 57, when we look at this, I, I want us to just understand this morning that God sends revival. And the title of the message was When God Sends Revival. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But we're going to look here at Isaiah chapter 57 this morning. And so if you would follow along as I read, we're going to look at virtually this, most all of this chapter. We'll probably not look much at the last two verses. Uh, we'll wrap up about verse 19. But he starts off, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away. None considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. How shall enter into peace? Or he shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock? Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured out drink offering, and thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed, even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also of the, and the post hast thou set up thy, thy remembrance, for thou hast discovered thyself to another, other th to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed, and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment, and did increase thy perfumes. Thou didst send thy messengers afar off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. Thou art wearied in the greatness of the way, yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared, that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me? nor laid it to thy heart. Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain." And shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. 
I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth. For the spirit should fail before men and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of, this covetous, of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him, I hid me, and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off. And to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal, heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters are cast upon my up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Leonard Ravenhill said that if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, that he would have never been crucified. Isaiah's message from God is strong. It's not easy to hear. It's not easy to preach. But it's what they needed. And revival is what we need. Amen. When God sends revival, it's amazing what can happen. Amen. Let's pray as we begin. Father, again, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for our church, its family. Lord, I pray that you'd bless your word, that you would anoint it, that you would give me power to preach, that you would help things to flow as you would have them. May our hearts be open. And may you speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as Isaiah confronts God's people here, he is drawing their attention to some obvious problems in their life and some things that are uh, not pleasing to the Lord. As we saw a few weeks ago from Isaiah chapter 2, and 1 and 2, uh, it's not that they're not worshiping God. It's not that they're not offering sacrifice. They're doing everything that God told them to do, plus they're adding to and they're welcoming in false gods and idols that, uh, that come. And so he, he begins to draw their attention uh, to what's going on upon, in their life. And so he draws their attention to their sin and the effect of their sin upon their own lives. He then compels them to return to God and then to possess all the blessing and power that God has for them as a nation. And so when we look here, Isaiah is speaking to a nation, but the parallels in our own personal Christian lives cannot be missed or avoided. And so when we look this morning, he draws their attention uh, by way of introduction, getting down to verse 15, uh, to four primary problems that are areas that they're facing. We see, first of all, uh, and by the way, this is introduction, so if you're trying to follow along, we've not made it to the point yet. He draws their attention to the problem. And if you notice in verses 3 through 9, I'm not going to reread all of those verses this morning, but he uses very strong language whenever he confronts them. He looks at them and he calls them uh, sons of the sorceress and the seed of an adulterer and the whore. That, that is harsh language. If you went to someone today and you began to, a conversation or uh, to, to talk to them that way, uh, there, there aren't many people that would stand there and even listen. Uh, and so he's coming on fast and strong with the word that God uh, has given him. And their problem is this. They're caught up uh, in adulterous and, uh, and idolatrous relationships. 
They are literally worshiping false gods. They are still going through the motions of the worship of their true God, but they, their heart is not there. Uh, they are worshiping false gods. Well, pastor, I don't have any idols in my house. We all have idols that we battle with. Sometimes that idol is self. Sometimes that idol is career. Sometimes that idol may be our children or family. But anything that, that impedes upon God's proper place in our life becomes an idol. First John uh, chapter, or, or all of first, the book of First John uh, never addresses the subject of idolatry for its, its entire five chapters but it closes little children keep yourself from idols because everything that, that gets in the way or interferes with us and our God becomes an idol to us. And so we look here, he says, here's your problem. You're, you're inflamed, according to verse 5, inflaming yourself with idols. They're inflamed with idols. They're excited. They're worshiping their, their idols and, uh, and they're going along with the flows of, their, uh, and the, of the worship of, uh, of, of, of what they're culturally is going on around them and they're embracing in the high places and not only that, they're, they're gone so far that at times they even offered their own children as a living, as a sacrifice to these idols. That's unthinkable to us. We cannot imagine taking one of our children uh, up to an altar somewhere in a high place and, and cutting their throat and watching them die to honor some false god. But there are a lot of cultures throughout history where that was common practice. And it was common practice uh, among some of the peoples that were surrounding Israel at the time. And they offered, we see in verses 6 and 7, that they offered their own children uh, at times to these false gods. They were committed enough to offer their own children in sacrifice. They debased themselves. But they saw their debasement as righteousness in verses 8 and 9. And he says there to them, Thou wentest to the king with ointment, and did increase thy perfumes, and did send thy messengers uh, afar off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. Now there's the word debase is the same word as the word humiliate or, or humble that we'll see later in verse 15. And they both mean literally to humiliate. And what he's saying here is that you've debased yourself. In other words, your actions, your lifestyle, your worship, your, your values, your way of thinking has debased yourself. You've debased, you're, you're humiliated and you don't even know it. You're humiliating yourself and you think it's honorable. I, I try to put that in the context that we can understand this morning. Uh, but if someone were to, uh, were to go out under the influence of drugs or alcohol and act uh, foolishly and uh, in a way that disgraced themselves, but because of the drug and the alcohol, they're unaware of how uh, they're behaving and how their, their behavior is perceived and what they're, they're humiliating themselves, but they, they, they don't even know it. That's where Israel's gotten to. To where their way of life, that they have debased themselves and they're humiliated. Now they're going to be humiliated by humbling themselves, which is the opposite side of the coin. That's the kind of humili humility that we should have. The kind of humiliation we should feel from our sin. They're glorying in their sin. And he calls them on it. So he draws their attention to the problem. Then secondly, we see that he draws their, their attention to the product of the problem. What their, their sin produces something, and our sin produces something. I cannot sin and it not produce an effect in my life. 
I cannot go out and live uh, and, and, and go against God and go against his character and go against his nature and go against his command and it not affect me. Say, Pastor, do you think that we're that way? We're all that way. It's our nature to be that way. And it may manifest itself in different ways, but we are all constantly in a battle with our own flesh and with the world around us uh, to stay in tune and to stay uh, pure and true to our God. And so he draws our attention to the product of the problem. What is it? Well, we see the first part of it back in verse number one. Notice that he says, the righteous perisheth. Now the word perish here, and we saw this on Wednesday in Psalm 12, uh, that the righteous are gone away. In other words, some are perished because they've been executed. Some have perished because they, uh, we, we've stopped producing righteous people. Some have perished because they, they once were faithful and they now choose not to be. They choose not to serve God. They've forsaken the Lord uh, in the path and in the way. All of them are applicable. The righteous perisheth and no man layeth it to heart. The righteous is going away and you're not even bothered by it, he says to them. He says that it's not even on your radar. It doesn't even concern you. And that's problem. Uh, the product of the problem number one is that the righteous are going away. Are we bothered? Look at our nation this morning and we look at the aftermath of 9-11 and look at our political scene and look at the values of our nation and the, the lack of morality that uh, exists and, and you, can't even, you can't even really bring those things up without it creating a huge backlash today uh, culturally and in society. But God is still God. Yes. And His holiness is still holiness. And will we stand by as the righteous perish and not be bothered by it? Will we not answer the call to prayer that God would raise up righteous, godly leaders in our nation again? The righteous perish and it doesn't concern them. Not only that, but in verse 10, we see that they are worn down by their sin, but it doesn't grieve them. Notice verse 10 again. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. It's a burden to them. Yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. I'll find my way out. I'll find happiness in my sin yet. I'll find, uh, I'll find fulfillment in my uh, abandonment of, uh, of God yet. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. In other words, I, I see a way for me to get through this, so I'm not accepting the responsibility for the impact of my sin, and I'm not grieved by it. I, I'm not bothered by it. The next product that we see is this. They have forgotten their true God. And verse number 11. And of him whose thou hast been afraid. And of whom, excuse me, and of whom hast thou been afraid or feared. That thou hast lied and hast not remembered me. Nor laid it to thy heart. Had not I held my peace even of old. And thou fearest me not. So we today have lost our fear of God. We've lost our fear of the, and, and terror of God. And say, well, pastor, God loves us and he cares for us and he saves us. Yes, he does. But when I go against him, when I defy him, it should terrify me. When I openly live in sin, I should be terrified of God's chastening hand on my life. We've lost that today. We, we have, have lost it in every realm of our life. We do not fear the judgment or the chastisement of God on our life. 
when I was little and, and bad punishment was coming and I knew it was coming, it was terrible. It was terrifying. It didn't, my, you know, my family wasn't intact for very long, but in those short years when I was really young uh, and my dad was still in the home uh, and he was uh, almost as tall as I am and bigger, uh, and, and boy, when I really had it coming, I was terrified. Now, I wasn't terrified that he was going to permanently damage me, but I was terrified. That's not a bad thing. We ought to be terrified of God whenever we defy him. Yeah, we ought to be terrified of God when we justify our sin. When we, go about, uh, when we go about things our way instead of his. And so he draws their attention to the product. They, they've lost their fear. They've forgotten their true God. We see uh, him speak of it to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And I, I know we know the passage, but the church at Ephesus was, uh, by and large, when you read the, the book of Ephesians, it was a great church. But he says in verse 2, I know thy works in Revelation 2 and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. And repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. See the parallel. They're going through all of the motions, but they've lost the significance of relationship. It was said, <clears throat> as we look here, they draw their attention to the product. Vance Habner said, they have forgotten their true God. He said this, Vance Habner, a revival is the church falling in love with Jesus all over again. And if we want revival this morning, while we should have a fear of God if we stubbornly hang on to our sin, the goal is to restore the restoration of the relationship. And as me as God's child falling in love with my Father in heaven all over again, I want to fall in love with my Savior. I want to serve Him. I want to be faithful to Him. I want to be loyal to Him. I want to labor for Him to express my love for Him. Not because I just have to perform my duty. We have far too many Christians today that just do their duty. But have lost a love for the Savior. What we need is to fall in love with our Savior all over again. So he draws their attention to the problem, to the product of the problem. Then he draws their attention to the path they're on. Notice in verses 13 and 14, he says, When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them away. Vanity shall take them. But... He that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. If I want to recognize the path of God, I must get on that path. He, he, he describes two things here. First, he says it is a path of trust. I have to get on the path of trust of my God, of Jehovah God. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Not only that, but it is a path that is cleared of stumbling stones. Notice in verse 14, And shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. A pastor that was well known in the mid-1800s delivering a sermon, uh, I believe it was in the 1850s, gave the story of, uh, uh, of the pasture. The pasture was just a 
title of a, of a, uh, a nobleman uh, in, in the area of Gaza. Uh, and there was a specific path that they would come from Gaza into Jerusalem. And that path had a stretch that was notorious for being littered with stones and rocks. And it was so treacherous to ride upon that they would dismount their horse or their donkey and they would lead it by the reins and walk through it because uh, it was, there was too much to stumble over. When this nobleman, the pastor, would come, uh, they would put a sign out that would say that he was coming so that people could get out and he would have a large entourage that would go before him and they would, they would pick up the stones and they would yell as they were going, cast up, cast up, cast up the stones. What are they doing? They're removing the stumbling blocks from the path so that they could move forward safely and arrive at their destination. And what we need to do, understand this morning is that I need to clear the path of sin and the sin that so easily besets me so that I can walk in the path of my God and I can walk there freely without the treachery of the stepping stumbling stones of my own sin. That's good. Amen. He drew their attention to the path. Then we see fourthly before we move into the body of the message this morning that he drew their attention to God's pronouncement and plea. God's not done. God comes on strong he lays out their position clearly and harshly. He comes on and yet, yet lovingly and he states this is the way things are. But he doesn't then say that I'm done with you. He makes a plea. God is always long-suffering to us and always pleading with us to return to him. And we'll spend the majority of our time in verse number 15 this morning but he states again in verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that, inherit, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He draws their attention to his pronouncement and plea. What, is it, what do I mean? I mean he pronounces his holiness. I am holy. And until we see God above all else as holy, we'll never have a reason to fear him or to grieve over our sin. So he declares, I'm holy and I dwell in holiness. Then he makes a plea, come unto me humbly. Come humbly. The word humble there again, it's like debased. Come to me shamed by your sin. Preach this on a Wednesday night. We looked at Psalm 6 a few weeks ago, but essentially that entire Psalm play, makes a plea for this. Then we've lost that ability in our day and age. Are we uh, able, are we capable to feel shame for our sin? I remember as a child doing things sometimes and it'd be pointed out and when it was pointed out, it would feel so ashamed. When's the last time that you or I had through our devotional reading, through our prayer time with God, through a sermon that was preached or a book that we read, been made aware of something that caused us to be ashamed of ourselves. Our sin should humble us. There is shame in sin. And if I'm not shamed and I don't feel the weight of the shame of my sin, why would I ever turn to God for repentance? or for forgiveness and repentance. Come to me humbly, he says, in contrition. He says here, 
I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. The word contrite means crushed. He says, I dwell with him who is crushed by his sin. I come to him who feels the shame of sin. Him will I dwell with and I will revive him. I will make him alive again. I will refresh his spirit. I will lift him up and give him joy. I will lift him up and give him power. And so when we look and we see that God is making a plea to his people, he's longing for them to feel the weight of their sin, that they might seek forgiveness from their sin, that they might come to him and experience his love and his forgiveness and his empowerment and be revived. Henry Blackaby said of revival, when holy God draws near in true revival, people come under terrible conviction of sin. The outstanding feature of spiritual awakening has been the profound consciousness of the presence and the holiness of God. My plea this morning is that we would plead with God to reveal His holiness to us that we might once again feel the weight and the burden of our sin. So, Pastor, but I'm saved. My sin is lifted. I'm not talking about sin in that context. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ and your Savior, that's first and foremost, that's paramount. But as a Christian, knowing that my sin is forgiven, but my sin is a, a wedge between me and my Father in heaven, then I come to that sin and I long to get it eradicated that my relationship with my Father might be restored. It's between me and Him and it has to go. Then we see three primary things in this verse where God reveals to us about revival sent. Consider first of all this morning that when God sends revival, it's personal. We long to see a national awakening. I long to see revival across the embodiment, the body of our church this morning. But understand this morning that when revival comes, you're not going to get revived this morning because your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church got revived. I'm not going to get revived this morning because Kyle got revived. And if 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 Richard and uh, if Brother Buck and Austin and Fred and, uh, and Matthew all get revived, that doesn't mean revival's coming to me because revival is personal. Amen. And until I understand that when God sends revival, he's working with me personally and individually in my own heart and life, I'll never experience it. He says here in verse number 15, I dwell in the high and holy place with him. It's personal. He dwells with him. And so when we look and we see this morning uh, that revival uh, is something that, a revival that redeems. When God sends revival, it is revival that redeems. If you're here this morning and you've never been aware of your sin and your position in or out of Christ and you do not know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that you would spend eternity in heaven or hell and you're uncertain which, may I say to you that God sending revival can redeem your soul. And if you're here this morning and you've been aware of your sin and repented of it and put your faith and trust in the risen Son of God, 
then you've experienced the position change in the new birth. That new life that God gave. That reviving. The word revive means to breathe. He, that breath that only God can put into us. Whenever he created us, he bent down, formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living soul. Listen, the dead spirit that lies dormant within me since the, since the fall of man in the garden is waiting for the spirit of God is waiting for me to come in my soul and say, Father, forgive me of my sin and become my savior and move into my heart till he can breathe into us once again again the breath of life Amen. that's salvation that's what revival starts if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ if you're trusting and uh, and going to church or you're trusting in being baptized or you're trusting in uh, doing a bunch of good works or you're trusting in this that or whatever it might be may I say to you that that trust as sincerely held as your belief may be is not going to redeem or revive your dead spirit only God can do that. Amen. And he wants to do that. Yes, he he's longing to do that. He's pleading with you. That he's trying to make us aware of our condition and the, and the, and the, the vileness of our sins so that we'll want to turn to him. Sin that corrupted his perfect creation. Sin that ruined his perfect relationship with his created beings. Sin that forced him to come here and put on human flesh. Sin that forced him to allow himself to be crucified on a cross. Sin that forced him to weep with us when we weep. To hurt with us when we hurt. To reach out to us when we stray, but thank God that he does. When God sends revival, it's personal and it starts with personal redemption. Not only that revival that comes, it's personal and that it restores Revival that restores is personal. I can't restore you. Listen, you don't have to come to me and confess your sins. You are your own priest with God once you're saved. Amen. If you need help, I'm happy to give it, but, but I don't need to forgive your sin. That's God's job. Just go to your Father in heaven and seek His forgiveness. Go to your Father in heaven and He'll, he'll forgive and He'll cleanse and he'll, and he'll wash anew. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Billy Sunday said of, of revival, I think I mentioned this on Wednesday, but Billy Sunday, a great revivalist of the early 1900s, uh, as someone came to him and they said, ah, uh, Evangelist Sunday, uh, said revival, revival is not, it just, it just, it's temporary, it doesn't last very long. He just looked at me and said, neither does the bath, but it still does you good. <laughs> Listen, we need to get, we need to be cleansed of our sin on a regular basis. Yeah. We need to come to God realizing that sin upon our lives and in our hearts separates us from him. Revival that restores is personal. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. Only God does that. Revival that reestablishes is personal. You know, God doesn't save us and then come to us when we backslide and we stray away from him and bring us back. To just be back. He brings us back. That we might be productive. That we might engage in relationship. That we might be used of him. To bring him honor and glory. And I'm just saying that revival that reestablishes this person. It was for me. 
when we were away from the Lord, when we were gone, when we came back and we gave our hearts to the Christ and we uh, went to the altar and we knelt and we prayed and we were all in, Lord. It was personal. No one did it for us. Leonard Ravenhill again, he said this, in revival, God is not concerned about filling empty churches. He is concerned about filling empty hearts. And when we get so consumed because we're pursuing something that's lacking in our relationship with God, that we fill it up on all kinds of things. God wants to come and take his rightful place back up in our heart and life. And if I'll cast up the stumbling block and offer a prayer of, repentance and forgiveness, seeking forgiveness from God so that he can clear the way, he can fill the void. Listen, I've got to desire him. If you're here this morning and you have no desire for those things, that, that relationship with God, if you've got no desire to be saved, if you have no desire to, to live wholeheartedly for Christ, if you have, I can't help you. And God, quite frankly, can't help you. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, that through desire, a man, having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. I must desire him. Do I have this morning a desire for God? When God sends revival, it's personal. Secondly, this morning, see that when God sends revival, it's powerful. It's powerful. Notice again in verse number 15, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit. To make alive that which is dead. That's power. To make alive a dead, dormant spirit is power. To make alive the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in a grave is power. To make alive Lazarus four days in the tomb is power. God says revival is powerful. He says, I'm going to resurrect your spirit. Notice, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Consider this morning that he wants to resurrect our spirit this morning. That literally interpreted wind, breath, I want to breathe into you life again, life anew, a walk with God, restored relationship with me. I want to come to you and raise up your spirit to give you joy, to give you peace, to give you purpose, to give you fulfillment. Then he says, I want to resurrect your heart. The heart is the inner man, the seed of our courage and consciousness said, I want to not just give you the spirit to do it, the, the, the energy, if you will, to do it, the empowerment and the will to do it, but I want to give you the knowledge and the courage and the strength and the wisdom to do it. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the courage or in the power of his might. Are we strong in the Lord this morning? Revival would make us so. When God sends revival, it's personal. When God sends revival, it's powerful. And then thirdly and lastly, consider that when God sends revival, it's productive. When revival comes, it produces an effect. Just as sin produces an effect, 
so does the power of God. And we see him producing, it's productive. What do we see? Notice in verse 18. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Consider this morning that when God sends revival, it's productive. Revival, first of all, is going to produce relationships. I dwell with him. It's a relationship with my Savior. A relationship with my God in heaven. A relationship that makes a difference, that impacts life, that brings unity to the body of Christ, that, uh, that causes us to, uh, to walk with him with whom we're agreed. Thomas Adams said, it is said of Judas that there were many hearts in one man. And we read of the saints, there was one heart in many men. Acts chapter number 4 and verse 32 of the new church is said, in the multitude of them that believe were of one heart and of one soul. The body of Christ should come together with one heart and one soul. Not to be pursuing our own dreams, our own desires, our own way, our own will. No, it's about God's will and God's way. It's about God's path and God's truth. It's about God's holiness and God's righteousness. It's about his love for us and his willingness to sacrifice himself on Calvary's cross that we might come to him. When God sends revival, it's productive. It produces relationship. And it produces a reliance upon God. It produces the knowledge that I can't do this myself. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot effectively preach. I cannot effectively comfort. I cannot effectively be a kind neighbor. I can, I can do nothing of my own power and ability. I am dependent and reliant upon my Savior. Re revival produces a reliance upon God. Why? Notice what he said again. He says, I have seen. He said, I will heal. He said, I will lead. He said, I will restore. He said, I will create. I can't do that. I can get awful frustrated trying. But I can't do it successfully. It is a, necess a necessity that I trust Christ. Revival produces a reliance upon God. He says, I revive. I see. I will heal. I will lead. I will create, saith the Lord. I can reach out. Because he's reaching out. Notice the beauty of this. God didn't just say, hey, I'm going to reach out to you whenever you prove to me. I'm going to reach out to you when you get close enough. No, he said, I'm going to reach out to him that is near and to him that is far. No matter how far I am from God, God's reaching out to me. No matter how, listen, he came all the way from heaven for us. He comes to us where we are. He comes to us in our, in our worst condition. He comes to us when we're completely unlovely. Jesus comes to us when everyone else would look at us and turn around and walk away. Amen. He says, I come to you. I 
Lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. I will heal him. I'm glad this morning that he came and found me. I'm glad this morning that he didn't leave me in my sin. I'm glad this morning that he loved me enough to come after me where I was. Amen. And I'm glad that he loved me enough to clean me up and to set my foot back on the right path. I'm glad when I go home this afternoon that there's not any liquor in my refrigerator. I'm glad that there's not any drugs hidden away in the cupboard. I'm glad that I don't have anything to hide from my wife. I'm glad this morning that God didn't leave me the way that I was, but he changed me. And perhaps the greatest thing that revival brings, the greatest thing that it produces, when it's all said and done, can be summed up thusly. Revival produces realness. Churches, places of employment, schools, shopping centers are desperate for people that are just real. Amen. The problem isn't the message. The problem is the credibility of those who deliver it. Revival produces realness. May God help me this week to find reviving. May God make it personal for me. May God make it powerful within me. May God allow it to produce something great from me. And may he do so by making himself real in me. Is God real to you this morning? Are you real to those in your life? Are you like Lot that sound the warning and have sons-in-law that say that you seem as one that mocks? Or are you one that when you speak, the realness of your walk with God compels them to stop, to listen, to consider, and to give opportunity for the Spirit of God to work in their life? May God help us to be real. When I see God as holy and awesome, I will become crushed and shamed by my sin. And my realization of that sin, when it comes, brings me to a place where finally I'm ready to be revived. And until I am, I can want it, I can long for it, but the conditions for revival truly don't exist in my heart and life. Our sin put our Savior on a cross. Our sin condemned us to hell. A lake of fire for eternity. But his love, his love, after condemning our position, said, I, this is what you've done. Now let me show you what I'll do. I love you. And he came for us. Will we put forth our hands. Our youngest, not for much longer, grandson, 
is at the point where Pops walks in, especially if Guelo's got him. That's my wife. Where he's really kind of learning how to just kind of get the hands up. We were sitting in the den the other day. She had him in a chair at the end of the sofa next to me. And the armrests of my chairs, the two armrests are really close together. He's just about 10 months old. And he lunged up on the, and crawled, tried to crawl across to get the pops. Because I was doing it like this. Hey, Gene. May I say to you this morning that God is standing here with his arms open in love, compelling us, compelling us to put our hands up. Say, Father, would you just pick me up? Would you just lay your head on my shoulder? Would you just pat me on the back? And would you just love me and teach me and train me how to be just like you?